Right, welcome everyone to today's episode of the Jason Modar Show, continuing our celebration of Pride Month by watching a Gospel Coalition video featuring Russell Moore talking about what Christians need to know about transgenderism. Please do not turn off your podcast. Please do not stop playing this video on YouTube. I know, I know. Gospel Coalition plus Russell Moore equals getting an estrogen shot. I understand. I understand. But in spite of the fact that such a milquetoast video is on the agenda today, this will be interesting. I promise. I will do my best to help my commentary make this interesting. By the way, it is blazingly hot in my office because I don't have any sort of air conditioning or ventilation really in here yet. So I have a couple of fans going and they're blowing on me. And if you can hear them in the background, I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not. I don't want to be stinking hot while I record this. So just deal with it, okay? Just deal with it. You're going to deal with watching Russell Moore and Gospel Coalition. Deal with hearing my fans in the background if you can. All right, so let me shrink myself down to size here for those watching on YouTube. Okay, so again, here we are, Gospel Coalition. Russell Moore on what Christians should know about transgenderism. And here is uh, Russell Moore. Or here's a question being posed to Russell Moore. What do you wish every Christian understood about transgenderism? And then at the end of my analysis of this video, we're going to come back and we're going to see what we've learned. That if Dr. Moore did indeed teach us about how Christians should understand transgenderism, so, with that being said, let us begin. Several years ago, I had an ethics final where I asked my students, at, I was at Southern Seminary at the time, um, about what they would do in a situation where a woman comes forward at the end of a service and says, I want to be baptized, I want to become a Christian, but I'm biologically, uh, I was born a man, biologically, have, I've had gender reassignment surgery, what does it mean for me to repent? The thing that that's actually a very interesting question to ask. Well, what does it mean for that woman to repent? It means that, well, first of all, praise God that you know she wants to repent. There, This is not just some made-up scenario. There are people that actually have more or less walked that path of repentance, which is wonderful when the Lord saves somebody from the sin of transgenderism. But you just be honest with the woman. You say, look, Jesus says you got to count the cost. It's going to be a high cost for you to do this. You need to pick up your cross daily and follow him, and you're going to have to quite literally pick up the cross daily for many, many years, if not for the rest of your life, as you walk away from this former life of sin and walk in sanctification and you walk in the Spirit. It's going to be really difficult, depending upon how far along in the transitioning process she is, how much of her anatomy has been mutilated, it could be very, very difficult. We'll be completely honest with her. I would say, look, you will never experience more joy. It'll be, you will not regret this. This will be the best thing, the best decision you have ever made, but it's going to be tough. It's going to require a lot out of you. You're going to need to detransition. You're going to need to live life as a woman. You're going to need to repudiate the idea of living life as a man. That means, yeah, going through the process of detransitioning, we're not going to leave you out to dry. We as a church and as a session of elders are going to be here with you and walk through you, walk with you through this process. But it's going to be really difficult. Who knows how much of your anatomy can be put back together, as it were? How how 
womanly physically you can become again will you be able to experience sex and childbirth and things like that i don't know but jesus is worth it all having jesus as lord of your life is worth it all being a christian is worth it all that's what it looks like it simple answer it's an easy answer theoretically in practice it's going to be difficult very difficult for this woman but that's what it would look like and i noticed at the moment was many of my students thought that was a trick question and i had to say this isn't a trick question it's probably because they don't trust you you are going to be dealing with this in your ministries and every ministry is either dealing with these issues will be shortly dealing with this these issues or simply not on mission uh, in their communities uh, around them and so i wish that that everyone understood first of all what really is going on here which is a larger question of whether or not God has put creational limits on us and whether God is, is Lord over our uh, biological createdness. And well, yes, he has put limits on us and he is Lord over biology. He made us male and female, men are men, women are women, and they are commanded in scriptures to behave according to the gender that God gave them at conception. And whether or not God has created us as a unity of self and body. Uh, I think that's an important question that goes far deeper than just the, the transgender question. But then secondly, to be able to understand and empathize with uh, transgender persons. No, don't empathize with them. That's a sneaky trick from Dr. Moore and others. Now, there are some Christians who use the word empathize and they mean sympathize, but then there are other Christians like Dr. Moore who use the word empathize and this is what they mean. So empathize means to feel in with somebody. And essentially when somebody asks you to empathize with them or when somebody like Dr. Moore says empathize with transgender people, it means feel what they feel. Get inside the head of a transgender person. Understand completely where they're coming from and really don't question them. Don't tell them they're wrong. Don't tell them they're bad because when people who demand and want empathy, that's what they mean. It means don't tell me I'm wrong. Affirm me. Feel what I'm feeling and just go along with it. Sympathy, yes. Sympathy is good. Sympathy is biblical. Now, the word sympathy is often translated as synonymous with the biblical word for compassion. So when we're told in the scriptures to be compassionate, it means we're to be sympathetic. That means to feel with, to feel alongside somebody. It means that you can understand where somebody's coming from, but you can still tell them no. You can still tell them they're wrong. You can still tell them they need to change. So this hypothetical woman from the beginning of the video who wants to repent, that's good. You want to repent, and you should repent. Sympathy is realizing this is going to be a really difficult road for you to walk, but you still need to do it anyway. So, no, just say no to empathy. Yes to sympathy, because it's biblical, and empathy is not. And to see them, as all of us are, fallen and broken, but not to see them as freaks. And so, uh, so sometimes I will, will see people kind of dismissing uh, those who have gender dysphoria as, as just uh, to, be, to be ridiculed. No, if we're on mission... Don't call individual people with gender dysphoria or transgenderism issues freaks and what's the word he just used to ridicule them to mock them sure don't but it is freakish it is abnormal it is unnatural transgenderism is all of those things and one of the reasons why we're in this mess that we're in is because we and that includes many men like him from behind the pulpits and in seminaries have been unwilling to call it freakish abnormal and unnatural behavior 
The time for weak, mealy-mouthed, milquetoast language like that of Dr. Moore is over. It's long gone. Bring back calling this stuff what it is, freakish, abnormal, and unnatural. And even though you shouldn't necessarily ridicule the woman who comes into your church wanting to repent of her transgenderism, you should ridicule transgenderism and especially, or in particular, those who are pushing the transitioning of children. Those who advocate for cutting off the breasts of perfectly healthy girls and women who advocate mutilating the genitals of young boys and young girls. Those people should be mocked, should be ridiculed with reckless abandon and without any apology. With Christ, that means that the message of Christ is going to every person, which means we have to have churches that teach from the, the very beginning, the earliest points of childhood, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in biblical terms, not in cultural stereotype uh, terms. And I think, frankly, uh, many of these uh, cultural, culturally stereotypical views of masculinity and femininity actually fuel the transgender movement. No, they don't. The transgender movement is not being fueled by people with stereotypical cultural, culturally stereotypical ideas of gender. It's primarily fueled by Satan and his demons. It should be obvious by anybody who has their scriptures open from time to time. It's, it's fueled by Satan and demons because Satan and his demons want to destroy mankind. They hate mankind. They hate God. And so they want to destroy and desecrate anything and everything related to truth, beauty, and goodness. And what's also fueling this movement is just read Romans 1. It's the worship of the created rather than the creator. It is giving into unnatural passions and desires. It's rejecting God's ways and man following his own ways. It's man, to borrow a line from the book of Judges, doing what's right in his own eyes. That's what's fueling the transgender movement. It's not cultural stereotypes. That may be filling up, I don't know, one or two percent of the gas tank to be generous, but the majority of it is Satan and his demons, and we really need to recover a better theology of the supernatural, but that's another video for another day. Satan and his demons are fueling this, and Romans 1 explains what's fueling this. We have rejected the Creator in favor of the created, doing things that we want to do, unnatural, freakish, abnormal desires coming to play. That's what's causing it, Dr. Moore. Because if you have the young girl in our church who doesn't like princesses and, uh, and, and dolls, uh, she'd rather be riding a four-wheeler uh, out with her dad. Uh, in a previous era, she would have just been seen to be a rough and tumble little girl. Now in our cultural environment, she may ask, does that mean I'm not a woman at all? Does that mean I'm something else? We have a... That's what's... Is he trying to say that that's what's fueling transgenderism? Is that the little girl who's a tomboy? What are you talking about, Dr. Moore? Look, this is craziness. The reason why that girl is asking that, does this, you know, does this mean I'm not a girl? Does this mean I'm a boy? Is because she has bad parents. That's likely what's going on. If she, you know, good parents wouldn't have to worry about their children asking those questions. Children are only going to ask those questions if they're exposed to the rot and filth and garbage of our culture. If they're in a public school, for instance, that's promoting this, that teachers are teaching it, that the students are okay with it, if not living it out and encouraging their peers to explore their sexuality in this perverted and unnatural and abominable 
way as well. If these children have unfettered access to the internet and social media and can be consuming material that is just doused in transgender ideology, that's what's going to make it happen. That's what's going to cause these kids to ask these questions. Normal children don't ask those kinds of questions unless they're having that sort of garbage filled into their brains. And ultimately, that is at the feet of the parents. That's It's lying. It lies at the feet of the parents to make sure that that doesn't happen. Not because cultural stereotypes. Complex biblical. But I wouldn't expect Russell Moore to actually talk direct and tough like that at all. I would expect him to be the weak, effeminate weasel that he is. ...view of what it means to be a man and a woman, uh, to teach that, and then also to equip our people to be able to patiently uh, disciple and work with those who feel alienated uh, from their genders. I mean, we're, we're all as fallen creatures alienated from our createdness at some point or other. Uh, some people are alienated from, from their sense of, of being a man and a woman. We need men to patiently work with men who are, are experiencing that kind, of, uh, that kind of dysphoria and women who are patiently able to work with women who are, who are doing the same. We, we just need to open up our Bibles. We need to open up our Bibles. We need to have preachers from the pulpit and men working together and women work together, whatever, with open Bibles saying, like, this is this is what the Bible says. Okay, there's only male and female. You're one or the other and you stay that forever. Men, men lead. They take the lead with educating children. They take the lead in the household. Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands love their wives with the sacrificial love of Christ. Women, the wives, respect their husbands. Women dress modestly and adorn themselves primarily with good works and inner beauty and submission. Men demonstrate and live out their manliness through being a providers, being yeah, being a provider, taking care of their family. It's spelled out in the scriptures. I could go on and on. Look at the life of David, of Solomon, Samuel, Jesus. The way that they acted and behaved shows you how men should be. Look at the lives of Hannah, Rebecca, Sarah, and on and on. That shows you how a woman should behave. What women desire, the true good and beautiful things about men and women. We need our Bibles open, looking at those pages of the scripture to figure out how we need to act as men and women. That's where we need to go. Thing, uh, knowing that this this isn't an overnight uh, situation. This is a, as with all of us, a long pattern of discipleship and sanctification. Well, like I said, let's go back to the very beginning. Remember this very first question? What do you wish every Christian understood about transgenderism? What did you, what did you learn from Dr. Moore? What did he help you understand about transgenderism from a Christian perspective? That he asks hard questions of his students, that he's unwilling to answer himself, that we should be empathetic towards transgenders and transgenderism, that cultural stereotypes about gender are fueling transgenderism. So basically, we didn't really learn much from Dr. Moore. I mean, this is, I don't, I don't understand how this is supposed to be helpful. What, what, what new things would you have learned? I mean, the very few things in this video that were actually helpful, it, there's no new light shed here. 
There's no, there's no profound insight. And I'm not saying we need some sort of new revelation from Dr. Moore. That's not what I'm asking for. But can you give us something that's actually helpful and that isn't just some sort of platitude or cliche Christian saying or Christian thing? Well, no. Of course, that's not where, what we're going to get from Dr. Moore. All right, so I think last time I said that I was going to start talking about books that I was reading. And I think last time I did at the beginning of the episode, I'll do it at the end of the episode right now. So the book that, let me see if it's in here real quick. No, I don't think it is. Anyway, well, there's actually two. I think I mentioned one of these last time. So I'm, I'm rereading for the third time the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm about halfway through the Fellowship of the Ring. We're doing a book study through our church, uh, through my church, on the Lord of the Rings. And we just had our first meeting a couple weeks ago. It was awesome. Such an excellent discussion. We're meeting at the Cigar Lounge in town. So we're hanging out, talking Tolkien, smoking cigars, smoking pipes drinking whiskey. It is a thing of beauty. I'm loving it. So I'm enjoying reading The Fellowship of the Ring again. If you've never read The Lord of the Rings trilogy, shame on you. Read the trilogy now. Turn off my video and go read it now. See, good thing I waited till the end to tell you to turn off my video. And then another book I finished reading recently was The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. It was phenomenal. You might be thinking a book about how to write Elements of Style. How's that? Any good? It was it was funny. It was helpful. So I, I teach writing. I like to write myself. And I learned a ton, ton from this book. I've heard about it, heard good things about it. And I've heard from multiple people that this is the kind of book, that, especially if you're in education, if you're in, you have anything to do with writing, that you should read this at least once a year, every year. And it's a, it's a thin book. It's like 81 pages, something. My, my edition's 81 pages. I read it within, I don't know, a course of about three hours over two days. It was very easy to read. And, and the examples that Strunk and White, and the, by the way, the White uh, is E.B. White, the author of Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. So it's William Strunk, who was E.B. White's professor in college, and then E.B. White came along after Strunk passed away and added some things and edited and updated his professor's little book on style. And it, it's hilarious. It's funny. The examples are awesome. The way that the authors decry the grammar and syntax errors that people make are often very humorous. Anyway, if you're remotely interested in writing, pick up Elements of Style. It's a informative and entertaining read. All right, well, that's all that I have for y'all today. Hope you enjoy the video. We will catch y'all next time. Until then, God bless.